Well, if you've been to New York or Chicago or L.A. or Paris, you know that being in a big city can be really exciting, can it? There's so many different cultural things that are happening. Um, there's so many spectacular sights to see. Um, it's, just, it's just a really fun experience. But at the same time, you also see a lot of sin concentrated in one area. Crime goes up. Prostitution goes up. And so cities bring with it both a glory and a sinfulness as well. And that's exactly what we have in the church at Corinth. Corinth was the vanity fair of the first century. They worshipped the god Aphrodite, which was the goddess of love and pleasure. And if you came to Corinth, which was a port city, and you sailed in, into shore and you took the main road through the city, you'd see a marketplace around you, and up at the top of the hill, you'd see a large temple devoted to Aphrodite. And you'd have priests in ecstatic tongues praising Aphrodite and prophesying. You'd have over thousands of temple prostitutes ready to worship through sexual acts. And a lot of times, you'd have soldiers and, and merchants coming into the city and squandering all their wealth on all the many pleasures that Corinth had to offer. Actually, to Corinthianize, this was actually a word, to Corinthianize meant to hire a prostitute. That's how debauched this city was. Horace, who was a famous poet of the time and who was basically a celebrity, said, not everyone is able to go to Corinth. And the reason he said that is you had to have some change if you went. You had to be wealthy. There was a wealthy aristocracy that was in charge of Corinth. And so you had bathhouses. You imagine all bathing in the nude together. And slaves cleaned the wealthy. So you'd go to this bathhouse, you'd strip down, and you'd have slaves actually wash you. You'd have celebrity orators. You'd have people who could just speak really well, and they were hired to come to different parties, and they'd preach paganism, they'd preach idolatry. This was rampant in the city. They also had gladiators. They changed the theater in Corinth and made it bigger so that gladiators could come in and start fighting. They actually had schools for gladiators in Corinth, where they'd stay throughout the week and just pummel each other until it was time to kill each other on, on the next day. But the strange thing is that gladiators were such celebrities that you'd see their name written all over buildings and, get this, they would bottle their sweat and sell it to people. Peter, would you ever do that for any of the Twins players? Would you buy their sweat? Maybe, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Corinth was a cesspool of self-gratification and self-promotion. It was a city of power, self-gratification, and self-promotion. And the sad thing is, that very sin became toxic in the church. There is way too much a Corinth in the church. Listen to what Paul says to this body of believers. He says, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. 
but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Because of self-promotion, because of pride, because in that culture, self was God, this church was getting tripped up and dividing for carnal reasons. They were dividing for very worldly, carnal reasons. One pastor said this, when churches divide for carnal reasons, they identify themselves with something other than Christ. They become the church of modern music, or the church of this pastor, or the church of the homeschoolers, or the church of the Democrats, or the church of the blue carpet, or green carpet. As soon as this happens, they are no longer the church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are so tempted to do the same today. In America, we worship ourselves. We put self-exaltation at, at the top. And too often, that seeps into our thinking without us even realizing it. The way this fleshed out in the church at Corinth is they understood some spiritual gifts to be more spiritual than others. They looked around at the body and said, oh, those people are the spiritual ones. They speak in tongues. Or, oh, wow, they can really preach. They're really the spiritual ones. And so worldly thinking crept into their thinking about spiritual gifts. But what we're going to learn today is that God has sovereignly divine, designed the church to have members who have different spiritual gifts from one another in order that they might serve one another for the spiritual health of the whole body. That's the main point of this sermon. God has sovereignly designed the church to have members who have different spiritual gifts from one another in order that they might serve one another for the spiritual health of the whole church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12. In the first three verses we see the Corinthians had a worldly perspective about the spiritual gifts. Paul says, starting in verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What's Paul talking about here? What he's saying is, because the Corinthians 
prized whatever looked more dramatic and spectacular in spiritual gifts, because they saw those as more spiritual, he needed to give them some guidance about what actually makes spiritual gifts spiritual. And so remember, in their pagan background, they'd go to the temple and they would see priests speaking in these spectacular, supernatural-looking, dramatic ways and think, oh, that's what spirituality looks like. So then guess what gift of the Spirit they clung to as more spiritual than others? The gift of tongues. Because society honored the ecstatic. They, they honored the ecstatic more than other gifts. And you could see that in chapter 14. So the Corinthians were too impressed with the dramatic and spectacular because that's what their culture taught them to do. We do the same thing. Our sinful hearts develop a narrow understanding of what a spiritual Christian looks like. All of us do this at times. I do this. We value spiritual gifts most that the worldly, the worldly system esteems. So, out in the world, an upfront strong leader is someone to be esteemed. So then what do we do in the church? We look up to upfront strong leaders and say, "Oh, that's spiritual." That's what being really spiritual means. Or in our culture, it's better to be outgoing and relational than introverted and unrelational. And so we look around in the body and we say, oh, they're so good with people. Whenever they come into a room, everyone lights up. They're really spiritual. They're strong Christians. And we assess spiritual gifts based on what our culture says instead of the Bible. Or our culture esteems those who are smart and educated. So if you have someone with a seminary degree, they're the ones who know God. Or some would say, man, the more spontaneous it is, the more charismatic, the more culturally cool you are, you're a really good spiritual Christian. The more culturally competent, we all judge one another based on worldly standards. And we tend to esteem the gifts that we have more than the gifts that others have because of our sin. Because often with the gifts that we have, God gives an accompanying passion for that gift. So if you have a gift for leading worship, you probably love to lead worship. You're passionate about it. You see it as something that's crucial for the church. So it's easy at that moment then to say, why don't more people in this church lead worship? Don't they see that this is an important gift? Or I love teaching. I love education. I love studying the Bible. My temptation might be you don't understand that theological system? I can't, you're not, you're not that spiritual. Any strong Christian is going to understand that doctrine. And so we cast stones on one another and become worldly in our thinking. Well, this has created recent disasters in the evangelical church. I grew up listening to a pastor in Chicago. His name is James McDonald. And uh, he is a powerful preacher, super gifted at preaching. And he preached the word. I mean, when, when I listen to him on Moody Radio, 
when I was at Moody Bible Institute and he came to the chapels, I was like, man, this guy knows God because I admired his gifts. It just came out recently. The church had to let him go because of financial impropriety. And apparently he hired a hitman to kill his son-in-law. I mean, like the worst imaginable story in the world. Pride got to his head. And we're all tempted to take pride in the gifts that God has given us. So we must beware. God has sovereignly designed the church to have members who have different spiritual gifts from one another in order that they might serve one another for the spiritual health of the whole body. Let's go to verses 4 through 11. Here we see that God designed members of the church to have such a rich variety of different gifts. In this room right now, there's such a rich variety of different gifts. It's really remarkable. You think about a lot of times a spiritual gift is a natural talent or experience that you've had. And then the Holy Spirit comes and enhances it for the good of the body. So we, we have different backgrounds, different strengths that the spirit uses for the good of each other and there are times where we're not good at something but in the moment the spirit helps us do it anyway and it's so neat to see God doing that in this body but we often don't recognize it listen to verses 4 through 11 now there are a there are varieties of gifts but the same spirit there are varieties of service but the same Lord there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish tongues or, or between the spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same spirit. Who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Look at verses 4 through 6 there. Why does Paul include every person of the Trinity? Do you see that? Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. When the New Testament says Lord, Kyrios, it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is the same God, God the Father, oftentimes Theos, God, and the New Testament is referring to God the Father, who empowers them all in everyone. Why does he mention each person of the Trinity? The reason is the diversity of divine persons in the Trinity is to be reflected in the diversity of spiritual gifts in the church. The diversity of divine persons in the Trinity is reflected in the diversity of gifts in the church. God is one, but there is diversity in the Godhead. 
and there is diversity in the church for the glory of God. Just as there's diversity in the, in the triune God, there's unity. The unity of the Trinity should be reflected in the unity of the body. So the, the Trinity is a pattern for us as a church to recognize that we are different and yet united. Now that's, that's different than how the world thinks. The world gets a little bit nervous when we talk too much about differences. If you start talking about how God designed men and women to be different, whoa, that's, that's de facto going to lead to injustice. So we don't celebrate diversity. The culture loves to say they celebrate diversity, but really they like everyone to be the same. And yet God says, no, there's diversity in the church because there's a diversity in the Holy Spirit and unity within diversity is the very thing that glorifies God. Look at verse 4. There are a variety of gifts. There are a variety of gifts. What's interesting about that word gift is it's a translation of the Greek word charismata. Charismata, which essentially means grace gift. Now look at verse 1. Now concerning spiritual gifts, that's a different Greek word. That's a Greek word, pneumatikos. Why in the world is Paul using a different word for spiritual gift? The reason is, the first word for gift, pneumatikos, is the word that the Corinthians were using to say, you're more spiritual than me because I don't have that gift. You're the real spiritual one. And yet Paul changes the word to charismata, grace gift, to recognize that, look, every gift that you have is a gift of grace. It's not from you. Why would you, why would you boast about something that you didn't produce? Also, that word charismata, grace gift, doesn't just talk about what we usually think about when we think about spiritual gifts. Preaching, teaching, tongues. If you look at 1 Corinthians 7, that same word is used for marriage and singleness. Those are charismata. Those are grace gifts. So what Paul is doing is saying, look, take your narrow definition of what spirituality is, take your narrow definition of what a spiritual gift is, and broaden it a lot bigger. Because the Holy Spirit is going to look a lot different in different people. And that is a good thing. We also see... Paul broadening our idea of what spiritual gifts are in the word service. Verse 5, there are varieties of service. That's from the Greek word diakonia, which is where we get deacon. And that word is used in secular Greek for all kinds of work. Waiting on tables, civil service, collection for the poor, all that are services. So all those things can be spiritual gifts if they're empowered, enhanced by the spiritual or by the Holy Spirit. We see the same thing in the word activities in verse 6. There are varieties of activities. activities. Those are essentially ways in which divine power is applied. So Paul is saying, look, broadening your view of spiritual gifts... The very thing you just think you're naturally talented at, the Spirit wants to use for the upbuilding 
of the church. Do you know that in scripture there's really no such thing as spiritual gifts? Not really. One of the words for spiritual gifts, if you translate it literally, is just gifts. And yet the translation adds the word spiritual in front of it. The other word that's translated as spiritual gifts is the one we've talked about, pneumatikos, which just means spirituals. Things the Spirit empowers you to do for the good of the body. Gifts are things the Spirit gives you for the good of the body. So, if we had the nursery this morning, and you were working in the nursery, and you were a single guy, and you think, I stink at taking care of kids. I've heard that before. That's just not my gift. Well, guess what? If the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do it and giving you the humility to do it, it's a spiritual gift, according to Scripture. It doesn't mean you have to go into the nursery and be like, here, let me teach you some songs. I know, I just know how to, how to work with kids. We, we narrow how the Spirit is at work in our lives. If you look at Romans 12 and Ephesians 4, those are the other places where spiritual gifts are listed. None of the gifts agree with each other. They're all different. All of them. Paul is not meaning to give us a comprehensive list of all the spiritual gifts. And yet we take these lists and say, man, if I don't find myself on this list, guess I can't really help my MLG a lot. Paul's trying to destroy that type of thinking. The Spirit's work in our body is broader than we realize. God is doing so much at Jubilee He's up to a lot more good than we even realize. Because we have a definition, a narrow definition of what spirituality looks like. We assume God is only at work if what we value is happening. I remember when I first led Say Yes in inner city ministry. Because God was gifting me to do it, I had a passion for it. Mentoring urban youth was the thing of my life. And for that season, God gifted me to do it. And you know what happened? That became my reference point for what obedience to God meant. So if you were in the church and you weren't mentoring urban youth, hmm, I guess you're somewhat obedient. We all tend to do that. Or if you have a gift for prayer and you're giving, you're laboring yourself in prayer for others, it's easy to think, Doesn't this church care about prayer? Why is no one praying in this church? Or we do that with teaching. We learn the Bible. We know how doctrine is so important. So those who aren't giving themselves to four hours of study a day, you know, Jubilee is just not that, it's not that doctrinal. So whatever we're gifted to do and God's given us a passion for, that becomes the law of this church. And if you don't abide by that, you're not spiritual. We need to guard ourselves. Can you imagine? Look at the list of of gifts in in verses 4 through 11. You have someone with the gift of healing. You can imagine him saying, man, there's so many sick people in this congregation and hardly anyone else is healing. Or you have someone with the gift of mercy. This church just doesn't care about the poor and the oppressed. We often use our gifts 
as something to judge someone else by instead of using to serve them with. We've all had that difference, right? When someone who's really gifted in a way that we aren't, we're around them, and we kind of feel a little smaller when we leave. As opposed to someone who's really gifted in an area, and we're not like them, but we leave feeling like, man, I do want to pray more. I love how that brother or sister prays, and they give themselves to prayer. And instead of feeling judged that I'm not just like them, instead I'm, I say to myself, I want to grow in prayer. There's a difference. So, when you think about your missional life group, are you seeking a cookie cutter of what you think a group should look like? And you're not going to join a group unless it's this, that, and the other? Or, are you seeing it as an opportunity for the Spirit to use you with people who are very different than you? We often go to the other form of thinking. Well, this MLG isn't this. And that's our attitude. We come in as a consumer. Instead of, wow, these people are different than me. How might God want me to serve? That's the, that's the attitude that God is calling us to have in these verses. So what are spiritual gifts? Simply, they're gifts of grace given by the Holy Spirit, which are designed to help others follow Jesus. Spiritual gifts are gifts of grace given by the Holy Spirit, which are designed to help others follow Jesus. They can be natural abilities the Spirit enhances in our life. If you want to find out what is my spiritual gift, start serving others, loving others in the body, and see how the Spirit works. And you know what? The Spirit gifts you in different ways for different seasons. I remember coming out of seminary and having worked with guys who come out of seminary, we all tend to think, I can't really be the one who's in charge of locking up and, and closing because my gift is preaching. I, I'm not, I'm not going to be the one in charge of locking up. <clears throat> Wrong. That's worldly thinking. Notice these three really encouraging realities that we see in this text. Look at verse 7. This promise. You have a gift. You have a gift. If you're a believer in this room, you have a gift. Verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You have a gift. And God has designed you to use it in this body. Second. Your gift is for everyone else's good. It's for everyone else, not for yourself. It's not to show people that you're this or that. It's for the good of others. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We also see it's the Spirit who decides how to gift you. Look at verse 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. God knows what he's doing in the way that you're designed. God knows what, you're do what he's doing in the way he's placed you in this body. This body needs you. Scripture says it. This body needs you. 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Life Together. I don't know if you've read Dietrich Bonhoeffer before, but this is probably his most accessible book. Some of the other books get pretty deep. But this book is, is about community, and he wrote it after having spent fellowship with a bunch of pastors and interns who are training together. He wrote this book. And what's remarkable about it is it has all these quotes in it that just punch you in the face. And, and I'm going to share one with you this morning. So cover your face. He says, the church is a divine, not an ideal reality. The church is a divine, not an ideal reality. What, you, what does he mean by that? He says, God hates visionary dreaming. Essentially, ideals of what the church ought to be. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. Someone who has their thoughts of what a church ought to be. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community and what a church should look like demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his law, and acts as if he's the creator of the Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. When things do not go his way, he becomes first an accuser of his brethren, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. What he's saying is, we can often look at the church, let's, let's think about Jubilee. We look at Jubilee, and we say, man, we're not ethnically diverse as we want to be, as we've aimed to be. And that should challenge us. We should be about that. But if we make that absolutely everything that this church is about, and we make that the law of if the spirits at work are not in this church, we're missing the whole point of what God is doing in this church. So we can tend to look at Jubilee, and we can tend to say, why isn't it like this? I'm going to go somewhere else. Or I'm just going to hang on the fringes. And that's not trusting that the Spirit of God is at work in many ways that we haven't designed because it's Him who designs the body. We must beware of a prideful attitude that assumes the Spirit is not at work because Jubilee doesn't look all the ways we think it should or are passionate about. Just like I did when I was in Say Yes and I thought all of you and your grandmas should be mentoring inner city youth or else you don't follow Jesus. We all tend toward that thinking. So, God has sovereignly designed the church to have members who have different spiritual gifts from one another in order that they might serve one another for the spiritual health of the whole body. Well, let's conclude by looking at the, the remaining verses in this passage. Let's look at 12 through 31. Verses 12 through 31. God designed members of the church to have a variety of different gifts so we will be mutually dependent upon one another. God is aiming for mutual dependence in the body. 
He wants me to need Dave O'Neill, even though his daughter's wearing a Cardinals shirt right next to him. God has designed this body for me to need George Nix, who, I just got to tell this story, George, because it's so cool. So we hired a plumber and spent more money than I'd like to say because I flushed, not my three daughters, I flushed our car keys down the toilet. And it wasn't my daughters. In fact, <laughs> I kept trying to blame them. And then George opened the pipe. So a plumber came. The plumber came, and he spent hours there and said, I, don't, I think you just need a new toilet. George came, came into my basement. He cut it open. He looked around. He found a tennis ball <laughs> and a rope. And he said, here, let's just use this. And he got my keys out five minutes later. And he said, before you blame your, your, your daughters of losing them, I think you're the one who, who did it. I need a George Nix in this body. We're very different from each other, but we need one another. And that's the joy that we want to have in this body. So, verses 12 through 31. For just as the body is one and has many members... And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to this body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, ah, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to this body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body, oh, sorry. Let me start in verse 17 again. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of of hearing. If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles... Are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. 
The church is meant to be mutually dependent, just like parts of, of a body. So look at the person next to you and recognize that that person is key in your spiritual life. They are key in your spiritual life. And recognize that you are key in their spiritual life. Whether you think it or not. Whether you think it or not doesn't matter. If my liver said, nah, I'm not really part of Toph's body, I would be dead. <laughs> we don't choose if we're a part of the body or not. If my heart stops beating, my head doesn't say, eh, good riddance. My head dies too. We are mutually dependent on one another. And that's so hard because we live in a very individualistic society. We don't like to be dependent on other people. And we don't like them to be dependent on us, especially if it means we're inconvenienced. And we have to love them. But that, has, that, that is the joy. that it, Man, when this, is, when this is happening, in my MLG, this happens by God's grace. And when it's happening, it is such a sweet thing. When the different parts of the body are working together, we're different from each other, but we're giving strength to one another. Now, when I preached this to my wife in my basement last night, when I was on the treadmill and she was lying in the bed, because our girls were asleep on the second floor, she asked me, now wait a minute, look at verse 31. That seems to clobber your whole message. See it there? But earnestly to desire the higher gifts. I thought you just said there aren't any higher gifts. So what's going on there? Well, if you read chapter 13 and 14, what you recognize is that the higher gifts are those gifts that edify the church. And so, let me, let me, let me give you this situation, and you determine which one is the higher spiritual gift. If the higher gifts are the ones that edify, the ones that serve the body, which one is the higher gift? I don't know why I picked another single guy in the nursery, but I'll do it again. A single guy who the Holy Spirit prompts to selflessly serve in the nursery, which is the higher gift, him? Or a preacher who's very eloquent, preaches with authority, but he mainly focuses on himself and not the Bible as much. Which one has the higher gift? According to this passage, it's that single guy who's prompted by the Holy Spirit to go work in the nursery even though it doesn't look spectacular like good preaching. So the higher gifts are those that serve the body. And Paul has to say that is because we often want the gifts that the body appreciates and likes, but doesn't always serve. Look at verse 15. Sometimes we believe we are not a significant part of the body. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. I can't preach like Lewis Guest. And I'm tempted sometimes to think, well, maybe this church doesn't need me. Well, this verse pushes me otherwise. I'm not a strong leader like John Erickson. Man, he'll get, he'll get right into the thick of it and lead and I'm just like oh, I don't really want to do that I cannot counsel like Dan Porch he, he's like you know where Proverbs says uh, the heart of a wise man is able to draw out 
what's in the depths of a person's soul. That's like Dan incarnate, you know, that's like, I can't, I can't counsel like him. I'm not as zealous as Jess wills about the oppressed. I'm not as spiritual as her. I've had those thoughts before. And yet th these verses are pushing against that. Just because we don't think we're a significant part of the body doesn't mean we aren't. This body needs your gifts. Sometimes we believe others are not a significant part of the body. 1 Corinthians 12 says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or, again, the head to the feet, Nah, I don't really need you. You're not, you're not, you're not reformed and Calvinistic enough. I don't think you're really helpful for this body. Or you're not charismatic enough. I don't think Jubilee needs you. You're kind of awkward and impersonal. I'm not going to invite you to my MLG. You're too young. You're too old. You're too married. You're too single. You don't do inner city ministry with any cultural competence. You're too unstructured and spontaneous. Or you're too type A and organized. We do this all the time in our sinful hearts. And we need to fight against that. Sometimes we believe others are not as significant of the part, part of the body, not because they aren't, but because they're different. All of our differing spiritual gifts are given, are by design to help each other become more like Jesus. So I, I ask, I end asking these, these questions. Do you have friendships in this church who have different gifts than you? Who are different than you? Who have a different educational background than you? Do you have friends in this church who are a very different personality type? Do you have friends in this church who, who are zealous for something very different than you? Or do you just create your holy huddle of, oh, we're, we're, the, we're the ones who pray, or oh, we're the ones who teach, or oh, we're the ones who lead worship? All these are meant to gift one another. The teachers are meant to bless the prayers, and the prayers are meant to bless the ones who do mercy ministry, and we challenge each other in unity, just like the Trinity is diverse, but unified. That's what God is calling us to in this body. Now, similarities are also a gift. I'm not saying that this text says we should find the most different people in this body and only be around them. Friendships are a gift, aren't they? We need people who are like us in some ways. The problem is we, we tend to allow that to rule us. We tend to allow similarities to rule us. And I think this text is just pushing against that. So that we will see that the Spirit can use someone who's very different than you in your life. So don't just hang out with all ears. Don't just hang out with all the eyes of the body or all the feet. Sharpen one another in love. God has sovereignly divide, designed the church to have members who have different spiritual gifts from one another in order that they might serve one another for the spiritual health of the whole body. Let's pray.